Hey everyone, Angela Bassett did the thing, Viola Davis, my woman king, from the FYC on-ramp, I'm Jordan Conrad, to the after parties held, cause I'm talking about the Oscars here, with Nival Buzz. How you doing today, man? Good, I was not ready for that introduction. I always like to keep you on your feet. Yeah, you do. How are you feeling about this year's Oscars? I'll be honest, I think it's just fine this year. I think there's like one movie in particular, and I think we feel about... Yeah, the same way. The same way. Because like every other film I've watched has been like good, but not compared to how amazing everything, everywhere, all at once has been. We're going to cover tar the next episode which is coming up this is our first like back-to-back episode we're gonna do because the oscars are so close so for those listening to part one right now you are going to be getting another part on sunday so seven days before oscar night that is how we're doing our release so yeah this is kind of our first dual episode podcast today and i mean it's a special occasion so hallelujah i guess it's interesting when you watch a well-constructed film you are aware that it's a well-constructed film. But I think that what makes a film truly powerful is when you feel something or you are able to dig deep in the film that you're watching. And a lot of the films that we watched for this particular two-part episode, I didn't feel those things. And yet they're like the cream of the crop films. Because again, obviously they're very, very well-made. But to me, it doesn't matter if a movie is well-made if it doesn't make me feel anything. Did you feel like generally some of these movies have intellectual ideas that might have stimulated you in some ways, even if the emotions might not have really bubbled up? To be honest with you, not even that. I was looking for them. I was actually specifically looking for intellectual ideas of any kind appearing in specifically The Fablemans and Babylon. And Babylon fares a bit better because it, it tries to be more ambitious, while The Fablemans is more of a tribute. It's interesting because the theme of the first part of our podcast, Double Feature, is honoring Hollywood, right? Quadruple feature, really. <laughs> but at least this first part is squarely is themed around like the idea there are movies out there that honor like Hollywood or specific figures in Hollywood. Hollywood and are sometimes like either swan songs or passion projects of well-known directors like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Quentin Tarantino and The Fablemans with Steven Spielberg and Babylon with Damien Chazelle. So like I said, I don't think that they were intellectually engaging or try to say intellectually anything truly poignant because it wasn't about that. At its very core, those movies weren't about making a statement or sending out a message. It was just honoring what these directors are actually passionate about. And Damien Chazelle and Babylon do it a little bit differently. It hits differently because it's also trying to not necessarily critique something, but also but look at a very transformative time in cinematic history. Whereas Steven Spielberg's movie is just like a semi-autobiographical movie about his childhood up to his adolescence, up to essentially like his adulthood. So ultimately, they're just about what these creators are passionate about versus what message they're trying to say to us, the audience. Let's talk about the Fablemans first here. As you mentioned, we've got two sections today 
And then on Sunday, we are also going to be doing a more roundabout conversation about the Oscars. I'm going to go through all the categories, talk about very quickly and bullet point style all of the nominees. I've seen, I think, to date over half of all of the nominees and most of the repeat nominees for the Oscars. So I have a lot of thoughts that I'm ready to share in part two. And we're also going to be covering Tar in part two as well. But right now... I think the Fablemans is a good place to start because it is in some way the most generic and vanilla version of this Hollywood send up that I've seen to date. It's a story that Spielberg had in his brain for a long time, like you said, a passion project. It is a story that he waited to tell until after his parents had passed because it is autobiographical and his parents play a large part in the story. So the story of the Fablemans revolves around this family. Sammy Fableman, played by Gabriel LaBelle. Someone I'll just probably call Mama Fableman, who is Michelle Williams. Paul Dano plays his father, Bert Fableman, and his best friend is Seth Rogen. And I don't know about you, but Benny, to me, doesn't register as a character. He's just Seth Rogen to me. And a couple other people show up throughout the movie, but one major actor that I do want to shout out right at the top is Judd Hirsch, who does a brief sort of stint in the movie, and he is nominated on the Oscars for that brief stint. And Judd Hirsch is a great actor. He brings the heat, he shows up, and he just shoots a couple of rounds and then dips. He's a ringer. That's what he does. He just comes in, does his job, gets out, and does it well. And that he does. And it's definitely one of the more memorable parts of the movie. So to me, I think the main actor that really stands out here talking about acting, of course, is where I specialize from. To me, actually, the highlight wasn't Paul Dano or Michelle Williams. Amazingly enough, it was the actor who played teenage Sammy. Gabriel LaBelle is kind of an unknown and he manages to bring such a great amount of natural charisma, and he has just a screen presence. You know, he has kind of that it Hollywood vibe to him. He's an actor that I imagine will probably come up again and again. Spielberg has, I mean, historically brought like stage actors and stuff in recent years in stuff like a West Side Story. He brought several people, one of whom I just emulated in the intro. <laughs> Bose, who played Anita in West Side Story. And so this is something that he's been able to do for recent years and likely in the past as well. But additionally, I think this is essentially his sort of perfect dream. But it also is a question I'd like to pose to you, which is what is the best, most honed version of a person's extremely personal narrative? Effectively, maybe as far as therapy art. Is there a limit to that kind of quality, do you believe? And if that's true, do you think that um, The Fablemans rises to it, transcends it, or lives somewhere in the middle? I think it lives somewhere in the middle because it doesn't do much with it. And I think that's like the main barricade when you try to do 
therapy art. Because eventually when you try to do therapy art based on a specific part of your life, no matter how much you condense it into a story, it's still your life. Your life is composed of 24 hour days. You can't fit that in in a two hour movie. And if you try to take like an entire period of your life, which is multiple days, meaning multiple sets of 24 hours, you know, eventually becomes so unwieldy that you're just taking what you assume to be the highlights. But of course, those highlights don't all string together perfectly. So you need to make stuff up to sort of work in the in-betweens that just don't connect very well. So they all connect really well. And I think that that's where the therapy art part needs to end in the process when you're actually making art. And real art draws on your own personal life all the time. I mean, as a writer myself, like I constantly draw on things from my personal life or personal experiences or the experiences of people I know and, and I'm close to in order to, to write. But certainly so does Spielberg. Often his best work draws from his life. So that's not even a knock on Spielberg and his writing style. It's just a knock on the Fableman specifically. So do you agree that this is therapy art? Yes and no, because when you're writing something and you're basing it off part of your life, there's sort of like a game with percentages. I believe that when you draw on something from your life, the highest the percentage can go that you draw from is 50%. The other 50% needs to be fiction, you know, because you're just you're needing to condense things, you're needing to actually formulate a story. And look, I don't know Steven Spielberg's life. I don't really know his autobiography that well. But it's very telling sometimes when you're watching a film and a film like this specifically, and nothing actively happens throughout most of it. You're just following this young man's life. And to some degree, that is interesting. But because you already expect things to happen, because the story already sets those things up almost from the beginning. And you also sort of when you walk into the Fablemans, and you know, Steven Spielberg's work, and also like amazing persona as a director, you start seeing the big moments in the film before they happen. And a lot of that journey gets ruined for because at that point you realize you're not being told a story you're being told a story that's mixed in with like a documentary of someone remember how i told you that um when we watched the Marilyn Monroe movie, it was tough to call it a biopic because it was taking too much agency with making stuff up about her life. Right. It had decidedly chosen to be a fiction. This is the opposite. This feels like it's trying to stay true to a lot of things, understandably, because it lacks a lot of that fiction that jolts the energy of a story. Then a lot of it just feels underwhelming as you watch it. You're just kind of looking at it and there is no real conflict going on in the film because the conflict in Steven Spielberg's real life, you know, had to do with his parents. And to him, that might have seemed monumental for him. It doesn't transfer as well as when you're watching this film to an audience. Effectively, this movie plays two different motifs. It's the parents' marriage, Paul Dano and Michelle Williams' characters, Mama and Papa, Fableman. And also, in parallel, is, and sometimes it intersperses, and I think in some of the greatest moments, you see the way in which film translates and maybe acts as therapy to Mama Fableman and to the family at large. But 
by and large, the plot that's kept separate is the story of Sammy Fableman and his rise to fame. And that one I find to be a little bit more interesting. Unfortunately, Spielberg, in the way in which he constructs the film as a filmmaker, as a writer, and as someone who is scaffolding it, sort of on the more basic level, Sammy Fableman is an inactive character, yeah. which... I see why you believe it has no narrative engine for that reason. It actually reminds me very similarly to the Linklater 2014 movie, Boyhood. Boyhood. It reminded me of that as well. Where the boy grows up and you kind of see the life around him. But in that movie, I found Ethan Hawke to be the most interesting character. Again, the parent is sort of the narrative engine instead of the child. Yeah. And that, I think, robs a lot of agency to a child in a coming-of-age story, where the child really should be making these discoveries. And again, I think he does have one pivotal moment right in the middle where he does have a little bit of that, and it was the most engaging part. In fact, it's one of the few moments that middle section is sort of like a pit in the movie that i can see throughout what is essentially just sort of clear and beautiful and completely forgettable so that's my main critique is that i don't think the fablemans is bad at all i think it is a lovely and beautiful and empty piece of cinema that said i think it's also better than many other recent spielberg movies and i think that's why he's getting so much praise because in his late career, Spielberg has kind of rested on his laurels and created stuff that is really interesting to look at. I mean, his camera work is something that people have studied for years, but you said it yourself, if the narrative engine isn't pulling you through the story, you're not going to get all the way there. The main conflict is this triangle between the parents and Sammy, but ultimately that's just at times the B plot almost. It's not the A plot because the A plot, as you said, is more about Sammy's like rise to become Steven Spielberg eventually. But during this primrose path where he becomes like the legendary director, we never see any obstacle because his mother is fully for him becoming a director. The conflict between the parents is the only issue that comes up for his filmmaking because they get into these little spats but not even but his father is the person who can pull the trigger on it and continues to finance sammy even though he grumbles about it throughout michelle williams's character you said yourself is emotionally supportive and that's where reality messes up the story of it. Because I think Steven Spielberg is rightfully saying, I had a great father. You know, like he may not have supported me 100% all the time about my ambition to become a filmmaker, but he did support me. And that is a showcase of a good father. That reality is blockading the story a bit because never do we see Paul Donovan's character actively say, no, you can't make films anymore. You must uh, become like an engineer. You must go on this path path because this path will make you money and will make you successful and you know filmmaking never will because Paul Dono's character in a lot of ways is, is a brilliant character he's like this timid character that we are able to peel the layers of every couple of scenes he appears in and it's great you know it, it feels like a play and of course like we can't talk about that without speaking about another goat who's involved with this film Tony Kushner who wrote the film with Steven Spielberg 
before you continue, Tony Kushner, huge guy in plays. That's kind of where you and I know him from. He wrote Angels in America, which is kind of one of the great seminal theater theatrical works to this day that talks about gay men in the AIDS crisis. So that I just wanted to slot in there, as well as he created a lot of great things. What was the, there was a musical he made that was wonderful. Uh, Caroline or Change. Great play. Kushner has been working with uh, Spielberg for a little bit now. And I mean, they're two great giants. So that said, I mean, okay, the writing can't be that bad because Kushner's involved. That said, because he's trying to stay so true to the memory he has of his parents, or what I assume, like the good relationship he had with his parents, even though they had like dips of conflict throughout his life, I think that because they lack any true conflict beyond sort of their their marital differences between each other that affect Sammy's life and probably affected, if not truly affected, Steven Spielberg's life, there isn't much stake in terms of the the main through line of the story which is sammy becoming a filmmaker because it just feels like it's almost effortless he deals with with nothing to get there he almost becomes like this genius filmmaker without even really trying which is such a weird thing when you watch it because it almost feels like I'm going to pat myself on the back really, really hard. Almost as hard as Michelle Williams with uh, <laughs> with LaBelle in that one scene. It's sort of a self-mythologizing to a Ayn Randian level, almost. Yeah. It's categorizing Sammy Fableman as this incredible self-made man in spirit. But, I mean, in actual physical reality, he is acknowledging his privilege in some small capacity. Exactly. I mean, his father was one of the leading computer scientists prior to the advent of the home PC. So he has some awareness of his privilege, but I think that's one huge thing that's not going to age very well as this film continues to move through the years and people rewatch it, is that those, you know, especially people who spend a lot of time on Twitter, watch this movie, they're going to find a lot of issues yeah. with the way in which Sammy Fableman is portrayed, particularly knowing that this is a semi-autobiographical film because Sammy Fableman doesn't really have problems. He has hashtag white people problems. Yeah, which are not even problems. Like his major conflict is his parents, but his parents are loving, supportive parents. His father, like he becomes very rich. I mean, at, at one point they enter sort of like a mansion house in LA. And, um, you know, he even though he, as you said, even though he grumbles about like the hobby that is his filmmaking, he still supports it financially. And in that scene, you know, another conflict he has is with Seth Rogen's character. But even Seth Rogen's character is very loving towards him. Yeah, to the very last moment that Seth Rogen's character appears in the film, he is warm and kind and very Seth Rogen. <laughs> in fact, he's kind of built himself a niche in recent history. But that's the thing, like in any other film, that would not... That ending between like both Seth 
Brogan's character and Sammy Fableman, you know, would not be as endearing as it was because at the end of the day, this movie is quite endearing. Like a lot of the characters are lovable. A lot of their interactions are lovable, but it's almost like you mentioned how it's a very uh, well-made piece of cinema, but at the end of the day, it, it feels very shallow and empty. To me, it's almost like when you walk across like a very beautiful piece of art, but it's in your living room. You know what I mean? Like the piece of art you you put in your living room and you know it's constructed really well. And you're like, I'm just going to put this in my living room because it just feels really beautiful. And and it made me feel something when I bought it. But then I'm just going to put it in my living room and never think about it again. It's that empty wet on wet type style. The thing that got very popular in the later half of the 20th century, for sure. Almost like the well-made play. You know, that's another thing. Oh, yeah. That's a reference that 95% of our audience won't understand. Yeah, nobody will get. But yeah, to answer your question that you asked me in the beginning, which was, um, does it, it manage to transcend its sort of therapy art thing? It, it goes in the middle of it where it tries to, to make art, but because it ultimately says nothing, it very much doesn't succeed. But at the same token, there is, at least in the beginning and even near the end, you know, there is beautiful like cinematography that is very much Spielberg, but he just sort of drops it to be like, no, I'm making almost a documentary about my childhood, which was disappointing for me because that's what hooked me in when I was watching the, the movie at first. When, you know, like young Sammy is discovering film for the first time and he is playing with like uh, a recording of a camera and in order to see it, he puts his hand as sort of like the wall for the projection. And it's like this tiny little screen in his hand. And it was so, it reminded me of the best of films films that use visual mediums to say metaphors. Like what better metaphor is it for a young child to literally hold an image in his hand to mark like the beginning of his journey of becoming like the legendary filmmaker that he eventually, we know he becomes. You know, that to me feels like I'm in on the story in a really beautiful way. And it takes you to that next level of feeling that catharsis that you're looking for in an Oscar movie. Because at the end of the day, and even the Oscars themselves, Admit this with stuff like Coda winning, right? At the end of the day, you want a movie to make you feel good. And the thing that's going to win Best Picture isn't the movie that's conceptually based on the general ambiance of cinema. It's something that makes you really feel good. And that love of cinema, I think, can get you a lot of the way there. In fact, it might have gotten me more there than it did with you, because I did feel a lot of those touching moments throughout, but it was limited and it was very much vignette-based. But that's also a big thing with the Fablemans is that it was disjointed often. There were moments that felt like they could have taken place in a John Hughes movie. There are moments that look very sort of like licorice pizza-esque, very soft 35 millimeter type look to them. You know, when we watched Sammy make those films, you know, he made a couple of films throughout this entire movie. They were all beautifully shot and actually going into his process of he made a war movie and as one of his movies in like the middle of the Fablemans and he's telling this actor you need to feel this you need to feel this and the guy's like so you want me to act like I'm sad he's like yeah but but you need to feel it this way and he starts breaking it down of like you just saw your entire platoon die and it's your fault because you caused them to go down this 
Valley. And nobody else said, sure, you, the enemies are the ones that killed them, but it was you who made the order to go down there in the first place. And him breaking down that process as a director would to an actor was just very, very beautiful because again, it made me feel in on it because I guess, not just I guess, I know that you and I are both within the spheres of industry. So we know the language he's speaking. So it's much more impactful to us. It's hard for me because it feels like this movie is catered to people like me. But at the same time, it goes on a deeper level that it's actually not catered. It tricks me by making me feel like it's catered to people like me when it's actually not. It's catered specifically to Steven Spielberg's image of himself and Oscar bait and the actual like the elites of the industry. So it also makes me feel really empty because I'm like, this is not art. This is A, a big pat on the back and B, at worst, a shadow of the space in a cabinet where you hope your Oscar for this film will be held. And I think we'll talk more about it in a moment when we start dissecting Babylon, which is very similarly tuned towards a love of cinema. In fact, I think is even more concerned with it than The Fablemans. I will say that specifically The Fablemans, I think, does have something you hit on, which is that it is a movie that you watch and you feel like you're supposed to like more than you actually do. And that's one major thing I found on rewatch, which is something I was very blessed to be able to do, to see this movie not once, actually all of these movies, not once, but twice. Well, not every single one, but the ones we're covering on this podcast. I think that the Fablemans particularly was the least enjoyable on second watch because it is, to me, me the emptiest in terms of what it brings to its characters. The kind of love that Spielberg has for his family is, I think, lovely and admirable, but it doesn't quite translate all the way to the characters because the characters don't feel particularly personalized enough. They go about halfway there, but, you know, Dano and Williams are two absolute mammoths in this genre. I mean, something like Blue Valentine means that, and that was Michelle Williams, correct? Yeah, that was Michelle Williams. Steven Spielberg actually saw Blue Valentine. And when you watch Blue Valentine, he was like, I want her to play my mother. In specifically, Blue Valentine, I feel like she is bringing such an absolutely heart-wrenching performance that I felt stopped a little bit short here. I don't think that the Michelle Williams character is nearly fleshed out enough. She has all of this stuff, but it's all from the viewpoint of other people. And so you really don't get any of that intimacy that you get in something like Blue Valentine, which is really interested in intimacy. And then on the other side is Paul Dano, who I think is absolutely absolutely wonderful in The Batman. <laughs> and this movie, I think, actually, which is not a movie I liked as much as The Fablemans <laughs> at all, but he is at least giving some level of energy to this character, whereas in The Fablemans, he is really subdued. And I don't think Dano is as in tune with a subdued character as someone like the priest from There Will Be Blood or the Riddler from Batman. I think that that's where Tony Kushner's weakness as a filmmaker versus as a playwright comes out. I actually, unfortunately, blame Tony Kushner for that because at times the power of those characters come in their subtlety. The best characters in this film are played by Gabriel LaBelle, Michelle Williams, Paul Dano, Seth Rogen, and Judd Hirsch. 
And we'll get to Judd Hirsch eventually because we need to talk about his scene. But the reason those five actors are so successful in this movie compared to everybody else is because their characters deal with subtlety as you would in a play. You know, when you watch like such interactions between characters in like a play setting and there's like this monumental silence between them that's really deep and engaging and visceral, you feel that more when you're in the audience of an actual theater because you feel the energy of the play versus when you watch like a movie because you know you don't feel that same energy because the people are not in front of you you don't feel like the heightened sound of a needle drop because the needle drop is not in front of you and that has to do with the power of subtext i 100 percent agree with you that it's weird that these two powerhouses are subdued but i think it's a feature that tony kushner wanted in this film because that's his strength as a writer he's a playwright first yeah a screenwriter second But even still, Angels in America Part 2, the second section, does have a little bit more of that elevated kind of manic energy to it. You know, I think he can play in all of those fronts. Ultimately, the manic energy that's being portrayed is being portrayed by Gabriel LaBelle. That's why he's so charismatic. And Seth Rogen, which, you know, you you tried to lead me to this uh, earlier, but now I'll, I'll say it. You know, it's interesting that Seth Rogen is typecasted as like this nerdy, charismatic, like dude who knows a lot about computers because this is the second time I've watched him play this sort of character because the first time I watched him playing this sort of character was in the Steve Jobs movie when he portrayed Steve Wozniak. Also, really nerdy, somewhat charismatic, but ultimately somewhat tragic as well. And Seth Rogen does a good job because he's just good at playing that type, I guess, having seen him play that type twice. Yeah, he does wonderfully. Uh, You know, and Rogan really is one of those people that just does have a very clear and recognizable presence on screen. And he really brings you in. And I think he's got a lot of that old school Hollywood energy. But similar in Typecast, you wanted to briefly touch on who I think is maybe the best nominee in the acting categories for the Oscars, besides LaBelle, who I think is wonderful. But LaBelle was not nominated. Judd Hurt. So he comes in for about three scenes. If we're talking French scenes, you could pretty much lump it into one night, which you consider a scene if you like. But he is there briefly. I'd say that uh, Hirsch's character in terms of mechanics is a little clunky, but because it's Judd Hirsch coming in, I feel like it's one of those moments and um, you as a playwright can maybe speak to this as well because I know you've done this in the past where in an act two scenario, you write in a character that you just find to be so lovable and so fun as a playwright that you're like, I know this is going to give it the energy it needs. And it does. It's a play feature to just introduce a character in like a pivotal scene and then never see them again. And that's what's happening here. I I read a a little bit about the characterization of this character, Boris, I think Uncle Boris. And, you know, they explain Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner explained to Judd Hirsch that he effectively is like a seer. He operates in like, the characterization of an oracle or a seer because he comes in, it warns and celebrates 
Sammy's, you know, future as a filmmaker. But first and foremost, he warns him. He says like, yeah, it's great. It's amazing. But you might lose a lot. You will likely lose a lot because there is a certain element of humanity being lost there. And that's the thing. Like a lot of characters also say that throughout this film. And it's a really powerful monologue. And again, it's like it feels like a play scene because it's between two characters. There's a lot of energy that happens in this one scene and they're barely like moving. They're just like sort of standing at each other. Sammy runs around sometimes in the room because he's like freaked out by what this weird old man is telling him. There is a lot of power coming from the words that this man is saying. And again, it feels like we're in on it because we feel like there is a foreboding future for this person that's really scary. But at the same time, we're also not in it because we don't see this foreboding future like we do and say Babylon, (laughs) you know, because the stakes aren't apparent because we never reach the pivotal moment where he's actually like a successful filmmaker. We reach basically his, his... The beginning, the very, 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 very beginning. Sort of the inception of who he would later become happens very much right at the end. Yeah. And then the credits roll and that's it. And I honestly, we're not going to talk about that scene, but I thought it was my favorite. But there and again, I think moving into Babylon shortly, a lot of this kind of plays on my subjective experience watching a film, you know? Like, it's not necessarily about the sort of the symbolism of what it is actually in the film. It's the fact that X actor plays Y character. It's sort of like my version of like a Marvel post credit scene where you get to really find joy in the the canon of cinema. And so I thought it was awesome. I had a lot of fun watching it. I had a lot of fun watching it the second time. I'd have a lot of fun watching it just clicking on it as a clip on YouTube. But I think I'd stop short in saying that it is necessarily mechanically the zenith, that it has what a finale really needs to make a film, not just a good film, but a great film. And I would say, ultimately, The Fablemans is just that, a good film. Decent, well-made, pretty, but a little vacant. Again, that last scene and the Judd Hirsch scene are the pivotal moments for me. I thought they were the best, along with a lot of Michelle Williams and Paul Dano scenes where they're just able to be their characters fully, as opposed to be so sort of these auxiliary tools for Sa- Sammy Fa- Sam Sam Fableman. He says that multiple times that his name is Sam, <laughs> not Sammy, throughout this film. So I really wanted to make that point. It's funny because all of the girls, his girlfriend calls him Sammy, his mom calls him. Sammy. But it, that has to do with like an extension of weird anti Semitism that happens in this film that just pops out of almost nowhere. <laughs> but it was really weird that like this anti-Semitism propped up in California because <laughs> they move a lot around a lot in this movie <laughs> and it happened in the place that I was like really that's the place <laughs> not the place they just came from essentially the south Yeah, well, in the very least, the boondocks. On that note, I am going to let us take a quick break, and then we're going to move right on to talking about the much longer movie, Babylon. Quick thing before we take our break, just so you know, the second section, we will have some spoilers in the later part. So if you haven't seen Babylon, feel free to boot it up. It's on Paramount Plus and VOD right now. And right after this quick break, 
we will be talking about the thin line between talkies and the silent film era. So stay tuned and enjoy. Now, we're back. Let's talk Babylon. So Babylon is a return to form for Damien Chazelle, who is a director that has kind of built himself up as a director of films very much like Babylon. You have a character who is so enraptured with his art. In the case of Whiplash, that is jazz. In the case of La La Land, it's also kind of jazz, but it's also got a little bit of of that Hollywood aesthetic, very well known for having that motif throughout nostalgia that makes La La Land to a particular tone. And it's a tone that we're talking about in this episode, right? It's the I love Hollywood, I love movies kind of thing that's meant to stand out against other movies in the case of the Hollywood voters and the press for the case of the Golden Globes. Babylon is a long movie. It's about about three hours, and it's, I would say, pretty well paced in spite of its runtime. It's very frenetic. It's got a lot more energy. It's also way more chaotic than La La Land, and it's a little bit darker. I would argue it's kind of like a spiritual sequel to La La Land. It's got all of that same tone, and as we'll talk about in a little bit, it has some of the same musical motifs, but it's also in a different world. It doesn't seem to have any true homage to La La Land. It's just another adoption of the Hollywood story and takes real life characters and sort of composites or shifts them into new roles. What did you think, man? How did you uh, how'd you deal with the runtime? I mean, the runtime was fine because, like, as you said, it was paced well. Before I get into that, I wanted to, to respond to two things you said. First of all, return to form. I I don't think he's lost his form. If anything, like, he maybe lost his form this film because the other three films he's done are critically acclaimed. But there's one film that feels distinct to uh, sort of a new era. It felt like maybe he was moving on from the Hollywood sort of tortured artist type thing with First Man. But I didn't see First Man, and I don't think very many people I know saw First Man. So it might have been critically acclaimed, but it didn't really, it didn't seem to hit in the same way. And Babylon, despite the fact that it made almost no money, I feel like way more people have watched it, at least in my corner of the internet. Well, that's the thing. I watched half of First Man on a plane, and then I was like, this is so boring, (laughs) and they stopped watching it. So you're right. It was a very boring film, but it was a very well-made film. In a similar vein that The Fablemans was a very well-made film. It is interesting. La La Land feels like it's a movie between both Babylon and Whiplash because Whiplash and Babylon are very dark films, whereas La La Land is not necessarily dark at all. And it borrows thematic story beats from both those films, both in the artist wanting to become like an actress and a character wanting to become a jazz musician 
Revolution. And so a lot of familiar Damien Chazelle beats happen in Babylon. To that, I will agree with. But with La Land specifically, it also just feels like a dark inverse of La Land because, because it, it feels like it's the same story for the most part, just told in a much darker way. And that way, I did enjoy it. But you asked me, like, what are the runtime bothered me? It didn't bother me. But what did bother me was the fact that it was juggling so much throughout the three hours that I was just kind of like, I would have preferred if this movie was six hours. And it wasn't a movie, but a limited series. <laughs> if each character, if it did sort of what Arrested Development season four did. Yeah, exactly. Isolate an episode to a character. I feel like it would have been very effective. And everything's on the board here. But, you know, some of the characters I felt like in the same way that we were talking about briefly in the Fablemans section, the politics are kind of underbaked in some areas and it didn't quite land. I felt like the third hour was the weakest hour. Agreed. The final hour. Each of these hours has kind of their own feeling to them. And the final one, I think I wouldn't say is bad, but it feels less cathartic in a way that the first two acts, as you said, are. I think that is the thing I find most rewarding about Babylon, in fact, is the way in which these acts feel so tangible and real, you know? Even while maybe occasionally the character moments are foregone, the vibe and the tone remains so salient throughout. So it's a movie that I would subjectively, I'll say up the top, give it a full 10 out of 10 because I would watch it a hundred more times. But is it a perfect movie? I would say maybe not. And talking about the tone specifically, the opening moments sets the tone pretty spectacularly, which is that it feels like a wild party, right? There's like so much insanity. It opens with an elephant defecating on a man's face. And then from there, we move on to this crazy party with depravity and music and drugs and nudity and entertainment. And that's where we're introduced to our cast of characters we're spending the next three hours with. You missed like a key part that you know, the elephant is being taken to the party by the unexpected main character of the story, Manny Torres, played by uh, unknown Diego Calva. You know, I think this is like his breakout film. Is that fair to say, Jordan? I think that's fair to say. But he has had one major credit, which was on Narcos Mexico. But other than that, he is undoubtedly the lead character of the movie. Oh, and quick disclaimer going forward, I did spend a few days on set with Kelva. It may be a reason why I find this film to be so lovely is because I actually did spend some time around the actors in the film. I do play a very small part in the film. I very much doubt that you will see me there, but I am a little bit biased for that reason. That said, yeah, Kelva's character Manny is rags to riches type guy. He is born from immigrant parents and eventually becomes a development executive for the fictitious studio Kinesis. Yeah. And, you know, he starts from nothing, literally pushing an elephant to an executive's like house in order to be like a party spectacle. <laughs> that's like the purpose of the elephant. The elephant is also used in another smart, different way. That's horrible. But I will give credit where credit is due to Damien Chazelle. When you're watching like the trailers of Babylon, you don't really notice Diego Calva all that much. You notice Brad Pitt and you notice Margot Robbie as like the lead. 
Margot Robbie takes up a large portion. And of course, she is the romantic lead to Calva. But their first conversation is the main sort of engine for almost all of the trailer. There were several trailers and almost all of them basically consists of the Margot Robbie bit where she's talking about her ambitions. So you're absolutely right. Well, it's not only that. She effectively functions not only as the romantic lead, but the deterogonist of the story. She's like the second most important character in the story, where you can argue Brad Pitt is the tritogonist of the story, so the third most important character. And these two are two huge powerhouses in the industry. You know, so it's similar again to the Fablemans, where you have two powerhouses of the industry, but they serve as auxiliary characters to the main unknown actor. I think it was a bold choice, and I think it's also one of the things that pays off the best. The only problem is then, what are they doing with the tertiary characters? Brad Pitt, sure, is, I think, you can pretty much rank them effectively based off of screen time. And Brad Pitt, yes, is the third. But of all of the other tertiary characters, there are a lot of sort of bits and bobs and loose threads that we come up on in the later sections. Absolutely. Which becomes a little bit problematic. So Brad Pitt specifically, he plays plays Jack Conrad, who has this timbre of the ilk of Douglas Fairbanks. His character is an interesting centerpiece to the film, but I feel like we never really get a landing on how he is being portrayed. He obviously has a lot of power in his uh, moments as a character, but he's both treated as the lead of whatever scene he's in and the B character. As you said, he is the third most important. And yet every time he's on screen, he's almost treated like a main character. And I feel like that is where the tonal mismatch starts to happen. And that's purely a mechanical thing. I don't think watching the movie, I really feel that as much. It's just that I'm kind of wrapped up in the machinations of the story. And there's no lack of conflict for his character, as opposed to a movie like The Fablemans, in which conflict can be more difficult to find. With Jack, he is constantly coming up against obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. To a point, again, as you said, where you kind of want him to have more room to breathe so you can feel these beats land instead of it constantly feeling like every time we see Jack on screen, something just insane is happening in his life. What is really magical about his character is that he shrugs most of it off until he can't anymore because he slowly loses his hardened skin to avoid being human. And I think that's why his character works and that's why his character feels like a legendary presence like this leading man but that's the thing the story isn't about him and in a lot of ways it, it's both frustrating and also really wonderful that that's the case because you see it from a different perspective right you see the joe schmo as the leading character around this magnanimous figure who appears to be seemingly untouchable but then as the story goes on you realize that he is touchable because the thing that is holding him up to this insane status is his status. And that status slowly disappears as the story goes on. And when that status completely disappears, he becomes human again and he can't handle it or he struggles to handle it. And ultimately, Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie's like Nellie Leroy represent old Hollywood, whereas 
Manny represents this newer incoming Hollywood. Again, we talked about it uh, right before we we started this part of the podcast that the whole conflict between all the characters in this movie is not just between the characters, but between the entire world that the story inhabits, which is the silent era ending and the talking movies starting. This is a good time to bring up the fact that this movie has seemingly unlimited resources and utilizes these symbolic ideas in such a fantastic and intelligent way. It's one of those things that's like, if I drafted up a dream list of people that I wanted to work with, normally in a movie you get like maybe 10% of those, right? But in this movie, he is getting 90 to 100%. And to showcase that, he not only has Margot Robbie playing the talkies character, but who she replaced is essentially her double who is Samara Weaving from Ready or Not. She comes in and she's kind of sassy. Samara Weaving shows up and, you know, she is supposedly supposed to be the lead of this scene. And eventually they cut around the movie to no longer feature her. And slowly and slowly and slowly, Samara Weaving's character gets written out of the story and Margot Robbie's character, Nellie, gets written in. And it's just fascinating because in the movie La La Land, you do see Brie briefly that kind of idea which is like you know in hollywood often you are playing a type and so people around you uh, in these auditions are going to look very similar and that just speaks to it so wonderfully and so clearly and with such incredible bite so we briefly touched on margot robbie as nelly how would you describe her as a character i mean first and foremost she's an actress right and the way we get introduced to her is truly like an interesting way for a character to be introduced because she comes to the set piece the beginning set piece which is like this party that Manny's essentially like serving in he's the one that also like delivered the elephant and um the owner of the house is um is Levine yes exactly played by played by who flee from the red hot chili peppers and Margot Robbie comes to this like high class party. But that's the thing. She doesn't just come to this high class party. She crashes it because it's quickly discovered that she's not an actress at all. She's just she strives to be an actress. And just the way she sort of asserts her dream of becoming famous, like she gives out this like really powerful line of I will become famous. You're either born famous or you're not. That's basically what she's saying. And Manny is immediately attracted to that so he sways like the guard to let her in and they just start doing cocaine with each other and she's like yeah i want to become an actress and i will become an actress and manny tells her like yeah i want to work in film and and she's like then work in film you should do it and you know they encourage sort of each other to reach for their dreams so from that point on they actually move almost at the same sort of level of reaching their dreams and it's really fascinating because they both start from nothing at the same time and they both have their own paths they get to almost at the same time. But the thing that's really the most important thing about Margot Robbie's character is just like how Gabriel LaBelle was really charismatic as a Sam Fableman. Nellie Ro- Leroy is really charismatic as well to the point where she becomes the life and star of the party she's in, even though she wasn't invited in the first place. And more importantly, uh, that charisma is almost weaponized by her the entire movie so i think 
think it's actually used to a much better effect by her in this movie because it's actually used to its full potential. And that adds to her dark side, which comes out further and further the longer we get into the film, which is that at the core, you know, she's an addict. She is someone who thrives on the chaotic atmosphere. It's how she's able to get as far as she did. And additionally, it's something that she can't seem to let go of, despite the fact that she continues to rise up the ranks. She can't not be who she is. And as she is becoming a rising star, she's realizing who she is at her core, and that isn't a person who can sustain this kind of business. And there's an interesting thing about Margot Robbie, is that despite the fact that she is Australian, she keeps playing these characters with the same accent. She's done it in The Wolf of Wall Street, which I would say is actually very similar. But of course, the big one is that when she has played Harley Quinn in the DCEU, which is three times now, and every single time she brings that accent. And that's the thing, when I heard her, and I think because, again, we share our love for the show Harley Quinn, of course, all I heard was Harley Quinn. I didn't hear <laughs> Nellie Leroy, which was the only thing that took me out of her characterization. But yeah, I also love the Samara weaving part of it because I too am aware of that uncanny resemblance. Well, and you were a huge fan of Ready or Not. Yeah, I, I was. I mean, we watched it together, if I remember correctly. But I think what was also really interesting is like the auxiliary character that also appears in conjunction to Margot Robbie's uh, character of Nellie Leroy, like her director, played by uh, Damien Chazelle's wife. What's her name? Olivia Hamilton, which was kind of crazy. I was like, this is an amazing actress. I don't know where I've seen her before, but she's amazing. Why isn't she in more things? And then I realized like, yeah, I saw her before in La La Land because she's Damien Chazelle's phenomenal. I just wanted to put that in because I was like, I would hate myself if I didn't talk about her for the briefest of moments. She needs to be put in more things. Well, and maybe she's going to be in more Damien Chazelle movies. There are a lot of interesting, random cameos too, right? Apparently Kaya Gerber is in for a brief moment. I saw her and I was like what why is she in this movie yep <laughs> well and the same thing with olivia wilde who plays jack conrad's first wife for a single scene spike jones the director is also in there he plays the german guy who's shouting playing he plays a german director and he was the director of her spike jones is well known for directing her and he directed yeah the where the Kaufman wild things movies. are yeah where the wild things are he is one of my favorite directors of all time so it was really i actually did get to see him in real life too lucas haas i think uh mike mangella i don't know him very much but i know he's a huge guy in the tv sphere yeah he is gene smarts of course well but okay gene smart is a whole character she plays this amazing reporter with just the tiniest amount of screen time but i you know it's gene smart who we've praised on our episode on hacks but eleanor st john has just a few scenes but those scenes come on it's the same thing with the fablemans and judd hirsch where like she gets just a little bit but it goes a very 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 long way and 
And particularly her scene with Brad Pitt at the end, I thought was really, really fantastic. But also one person that I have to mention while we're talking about the like briefest of cameos is Jeff Garland, who I don't know if he says a word in the movie. If he does, it's very, very few of them. He does. He says like a couple of words here and there. He's great in it too. But to me, like we can't talk about like this podcast without mentioning the true all-star cameo that happens in this movie, which is radioactive Toby Maguire. <laughs> oh yeah. Because the thing is, once we open the portal of Toby Maguire, there's no turning back because he shows up in the final act and drags the main character into the bowels of hell. This is why I love Babylon so much is because you get Toby Maguire coming in and like talk about him in No Way Home. Awesome. Him in Babylon? I'm like, whoa. And I didn't know he was in the movie. I had seemingly lost that bit of information when preparing to watch it. So when he came on screen, I had totally forgotten that he was supposed to be in it. And he has this moment, he turns around and he looks like a vampire. Well, that's the thing. I was playing a video game called Fallout 4, which is a game about the nuclear apocalypse and like characters surviving this nuclear apocalypse. He looked like he was pumped with a whole lot of radiation. <laughs> that's how Tobey Maguire looked to me while I was playing this game. And... <laughs> I was just kind of like, this is so weird because he looks so unhealthy, but that's like the character. He genuinely looked scary. But to me, Maguire's appearance also was indicative of a lot of things that I disliked about Babylon. That again, it, it just, even though like it was great and even that visual imagery of him going into like the true club of Los Angeles, which was this crime ring subway station that each level became worse and worse and worse in the station. I mean, there was alligators at one point and almost like ritual torture in another level. They had an underground freak show and basically every awful thing. Metaphorically speaking, it was not that different from the party we saw in the beginning. The party in the beginning was also quite hedonistic and also quite awful in different ways. It, this one was just like truly depraved. And I like that sort of like purists might think this might be bad in the beginning, but this is much worse. Uh, that's how I saw it when I was trying to take apart that scene. But what I was saying about that particular section and Tobey Maguire's appearance, even though it was great, even though objectively it was all really good it ties back into what i said that it, it feels like this movie needed to be like a six episode limited series because it felt so removed from the immediate plot in a lot of ways. In terms of a movie, it's pointless. It felt like 40 minutes. And I can recognize that while still reveling in it. Yeah, but that's the thing. For me, it was just like, this is 40 minutes of my time where I invested myself in like a different character and I'm being whiplashed to like this weird place. And at the same time, like I get it, Manny himself is also whiplashed in this really weird place. And it's thematic in that way. But it's so jarring and it doesn't explore it enough that it it just feels like that lost potential that the Fablemans showed when we were just talking about how like the Fablemans had potential to dig deep into certain things and it didn't. Well, the same thing could be said to Babylon and it had 30 more minutes 
The thing absolutely should be said for Babylon. Here we need to talk about the other tertiary characters who get very, very much short shrift here. I mean, I think Jack Conrad gets the most, and yet still I feel like his character is shuffled off pretty rapidly in favor of Nellie and Manny's love story, which of course needs to kind of get fully played out. They're the main characters of the story, and Jack Conrad's story is like the second most important story but you're right like when you dig deeper into it there's like really interesting characters like each character here and each storyline here deserves his own movie especially the characters that were people of color like uh javon adepo who plays sydney palmer who essentially functions as like a louis armstrong type of person who starts off as a nothing trumpet player and then gets his like big break by live performing like being recorded in his live performances for movies and stuff but then there's his final scene where he learns about hollywood he gets into the machine of hollywood alongside manny i mean him and manny are like a team at Kinescope. And once he reaches his zenith, he realizes that there is something nefarious underneath and he walks away, right? Yeah. But because that last section is so truncated, there's so much else going on that we get this really awful harrowing scene that has absolutely no space to breathe. And it feels like it's cheapening the experience. And it's certainly cheapening the racism that he's experiencing. And that's the frustrating thing about Damien Chazelle. Like even that moment is brilliant in so many ways because both Sydney and Manny represents like inverses of each other. They're both both people of color functioning in this supremely white industry, both trying to make it. And Manny has essentially accepted that in order to make it, he must become essentially white himself. You know, he effectively says like at one point of the movie, when people are asking him like, oh yeah, where are you from? He doesn't say that he's from Mexico. He says like that he's from Spain in order to be more accepted of like for his heritage and his background to be more accepted for a white perspective. Whereas Sydney actively is shown to be proud of where he's coming from and actively is able to reject the industries trying to essentially use racist practices against him. We can talk about it because this is a spoiler-filled section. You know, Manny asks him to put blackface on because he tells Sydney that when they're recording him, the light makes him look lighter around other African-American musicians. So he's telling him, like, you need to look as black as they do. And Manny, a person of color, is telling him this, you know, without any empathy, without any sympathy, just saying to him, this is your job, you need to do it. That's the difference between both characters because Manny keeps on going on in this industry until the end of the movie. But Sydney is able to walk away immediately after this and say, you know, this is not for me. And then he goes back to perform in front of like African and American communities, people who embrace him for who he is. So in that way, brilliant. But as you said, also really frustrating because that's not what the movie is about. It's not about these two characters starting from nothing and then working together and then this drives them apart no the movie 
sees like five other movies. And this is just a small piece of that. And what's even more frustrating is that he, Sidney Palmer, ends up getting maybe better treatment than Lady Feiju, who I'll talk about momentarily. But I think the reason for that is because he is so entrenched in something that is very important to Damien Chazelle, evidenced by the fact that he got his start working on Whiplash alongside his composer. Do we have a name of that composer uh, in front of us here? Justin Hurwitz. So Hurwitz is not someone who has done a whole lot of other... He has done some other film scoring, I think. But he is kind of the staple uh, score for Chazelle. He is his go-to. And this is a good moment to talk about the music a little bit because the music, I think, is... I mean, a movie I really, really like. Um, obviously, we've talked about it. It's the flaws I'm going to keep talking about is flaws. We're doing a podcast. That's what we're doing. But the music is an important thread between La La Land and Babylon. I don't know if you noticed this, but this song, Someone in the Crowd from La La Land... I didn't notice that. ...says the love theme for Manny and Nelly throughout the film, and it's titled Gold Coast Rhythm. And Gold Coast Rhythm is Sidney Palmer's hit song, effectively, in the movie. And so he keeps going throughout the movie because of that, and so every time we see him play Gold Coast Rhythm, they're in a little bit of a different place, and the final time he plays it, as you mentioned, he is in a club with his peers. The song in La La Land, it shows kind of this weird intersection of hope and naivete, specifically in how you exist in the film industry. And it also tells about how and signifies that there's going to be something happening later in. There's that melancholy element. There's stuff that can be downright soul-crushing, right? In La La Land, it predicates the scene, which I believe briefly mentioned, where she comes in, they, she says like two lines, and they say, that's it. We've seen what we need to see. Get out of our office. And that, I think, is kind of a microcosm for the larger plot of Babylon, the themes that it ties together, the title, of course, the fall of an empire, and all of the other artistic choices. In a similar way, I would say it reminds me of like early PTA. Actually, a lot of Babylon reminds me of early PTA, specifically uh, Magnolia. But it also has more in common with Boogie Nights. But like Boogie Nights, that signals sort of the end of the 70s and the beginning of the Reagan era. So the Reagan era is the end of that beautiful dream. And so does Babylon, but with the talkies. And the talkies sort of wakes us up from the area that we were previously in. What do you mean by PTA? Paul Thomas Anderson. He is a director that came from the mid-90s. I speak like a, uh, a film buff, so I apologize. He came from the 90s. He made Licorice Pizza most recently, but he's well known for There Will Be Blood, which was kind of his magnum opus. Another great film in his canon. Someone I really, really, really admire. But um, his movie Magnolia is very similar in the way that it's also a lot of stories all told at once. It is just frenetic, really high energy, lots of swelling music, lots of really disparate storylines coagulating into a themic idea. Both have an absolutely insane ending, and both of them are movies that I adore conceptually, adore with all of my heart, but can also acknowledge that has a little bit of um, oddity, has a little bit of strangeness tied along with it. You get both sides. And they're both things that I think are passion projects that you only get to make once. This movie is massive, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad that the 
Fableman's conversation was shorter this time around. But I have a question for you. Just like how Steven Spielberg had his semi-autobiographical moment with the Fableman's, do you feel like there are semi-autobiographical moments in this film with Damien Chazelle? I mean, they have to be. He talked a little bit about on interview how he was writing Babylon actually prior to the advent of like his career. So he was coming into LA and sort of writing as he saw it. And so it's bound to have a little bit more autobiographical elements. There is a clear reason why he chose Manny as the everyman, right? That said, we know less about Damien Chazelle in his personal life than we do of Steven Spielberg, who has been in the canon for much longer. That said, I think it's also a better interpretation ultimately because Manny feels more like a three-dimensional character and Sammy Fableman, for all of the hard work they put in, doesn't. Yeah, and that's what I was trying to get to because, you know, like in the beginning of this podcast, I referred to the percentages of drawing from real life and then making fiction. The limit you need to get to is 50% of real life. Otherwise, it becomes too real and it messes up with the flow of the story. At least that's what I believe. And I've always believed that way. In this film, like obviously Manny is drawn from experiences Jordan and I can assume that are real to Damien Chazelle. He's a Latinx American He's a person of color and he is in this industry and he's also probably has had to prove himself time and time again and make sacrifices. He actively talks in this film, the dark side of this industry and how it corrupts you and how it forces you to make choices that, you know, you wouldn't normally make, which is things that people hinted to Sam Fableman in the Fablemans, but he never actually had to come against any of those things. He never actually had to come against any of those corruptions because we only saw the prologue to his actual career. But here we see the entire career of Manny from its catalyst to its ending. So we see like his entire hero's journey of his rise and his fall and then his eventual like semi-redemption. So that alone makes Babylon a better movie for me than The Fablemans. But like I said, the thing that still makes it somewhat shallow to me is that it does present a lot of half-baked ideas, as you said, Jordan, sometimes to a harmful degree, especially with its other characters of color, that it's just kind of like, dude, it's obvious you were very passionate about this project and you're very passionate about these characters and you're an amazing director. And with all your resources, rather than make a three-hour movie (laughs) that's stringing all these insane ideas together, just take your time (laughs) and build out those stories individually. You don't even need to make it a series make individual movies individual films certainly would be superior in that way and maybe they can even we have the technology now We have, I mean, yes. And we also, here's the thing is I heard, um, to respond to you directly, there was a critic that I heard when this movie first came out who described Babylon as the last movie ever made. And that is what he felt that Damien Chazelle was doing was that he felt like cinema might disappear into the ether tomorrow. And he wanted to make one last movie before he had to give up the handle, which is ridiculous because Damien Chazelle is a very very young filmmaker. 
So it would make no sense that he would stop making movies after this, and he will no doubt make more movies in this vein, because it's something he does incredibly well. However, obviously, the um, box office will limit what he's doing in terms of this. Okay, but I was going to move towards Lady Feiju, which we were talking a little bit about how there's a lot of issues with the characters they actually choose to represent, how deep they go into it. Lady Feiju is a prime example of that. Her character has this incredible sort of opening scene when the title, uh, right after the title hits and she has these like this like song that introduces her as an open lesbian, which is something that's super awesome and um, speaks to that subversive and egalitarian ethos of Babylon's world. There's, you know, all of this conservatism that we know from retrospect from the era of the Cold War, but that is not present in this Hollywood. This is before any kind of codes hit the Hollywood sphere. So everything's fair game. They have a lot of raunchiness that comes in the silent pictures as we see but also it shows that like anybody can climb the ladder right and maybe that is accurate maybe it's not but the fact that Feiju is with all of these big time Hollywood dudes you know she's at the same party as Jack Conrad and she has these really great moments it's just that when it's time for her to close of course she's sitting at the same table as Jack Conrad she's talking to him but she's like yeah I'm going on vacation that's all you need to know about me and she's an interesting character she deserves more than that. And she is, you know, she's an Asian person. She is living in Hollywood right before World War II. These are things that are important and deserve exploration. And of course, like a lot of things, gets short shrift. It's not the Cold War era. It's actually right before World War II. Hey there, Jordan here from the future. Just clarifying quickly, we go on to talk about the timeline of the actual film. What I was referring to in terms of quote-unquote the code is specifically the Hayes Code, which was put in place, he was correct, right before World War II in 1934. The Hayes Code is something that was created by an organization that would later become the MPA, which creates the rating system which we moved to in the late 60s. That is the code that I I referred to. So yeah, the Wild West of this film is still very much present and is still very much historically accurate. All right, back to our talk. So yeah, like the movie starts in 1926. So it's between, you know, World War One and World War Two. So obviously, it's in that weird period where there was that lull of major overseas conflict. And, you know, it was like what we refer to as a silent era or the prohibition era. And so it is a unique time in history, especially in Los Angeles, because that's when Los Angeles truly became a city that became this iconic, legendary thing because movies started becoming this massive overspanning international thing due to what Los Angeles was doing. And I mean, this is what the movie covers. It covers the silent era going into the talkie era, which we haven't even talked about yet. I would say one of the best scenes is that uh, second hour, the second act, 
where they finally have access to all of this stuff. And they're like, this is the future. We're going to do it. And they try to make their first talkie picture. And it's a mess. But before I even get to that, like Lady Feiju, you know, is also just like uh, Jack Conrad is also representing, you know, that silent era period, because even though she masquerades at night as like this, you know, exotic singer, you know, that comes to these parties, her day job is the person in charge of like that written dialogue that people see in silent films, those little frames, you know, she's the one that puts like the dialogue in those movies in that era of silent films. And when the silent films transition to talkies, she loses her job and her connection to that world because films don't do that anymore. So her job becomes obsolete, just like a lot of the other characters in the film, like Jack Conrad, because he can't act, but he can appear like he is acting when it's like a silent film, which is such a weird, it's a total mind because, you know, it's Brad Pitt, one of the greatest actors on earth. And he's trying not to act well in the scenes where he's told like, oh, yeah, you're you're a bad actor, actually. You just appear like you're a good actor. That's why you're so successful in these silent movies. When it's an actual scene, he's not. He's just a supporting actor. He's the ringer. When he finally transitions to a period where his career is really bad, even the CEO of his company, which I think is what, MGM? It's a metro Goldwyn Mayer, also known as MGM, the studio many people would know as like the studio that is in charge of the James Bond movies and a lot of like those old type cinema movies. Back in the old days, MGM was pretty much the cinema, but they also didn't really continue to produce as well throughout the 21st century and is now owned by Amazon. When that first act focuses on that rise to success, you know, if we had to break it down by the acts, right? Act one is the silent era. Act two is the talkie era. And act three is the fall of all the characters, really. The end of the party. Yeah, the end of the party. Very classic (laughs) start, rise, fall, and then tiny little redemption. So, you know, what personally loved act one and act two, because act one was the party. You know, all the characters found or started to find their success or were in their comfort period. You know, like there's that great scene where Manny is on this shoot with Spike Jones's character and all the cameras are destroyed because, you know, there is no combat training (laughs) in that scene because it's like a scene between like a bunch of people fighting and they accidentally destroy all the cameras forcing Manny to prove himself by driving to the other side of town in like two hours while there's still sunlight so they can film because back then it wasn't shot in studios they had to shoot it out in actual days using actual sunlight and they did on the actual day they shot it with that sunlight and I'll tell you if you're shooting on location you really do have very little time so Manny goes there gets it and then comes back and he becomes a hero. And it's the same thing. Like uh, Nellie Leroy has like a similar thing in that same sort of set where on another film, she comes in as this basically two bit role. And she's so charismatic that she's able to carry. She becomes like the breakout of that scene, which leads to other successes. But what was really fascinating and what the movie really touched on was that silent era was purely off of unbridled surface level charisma that these characters characters didn't necessarily need to be deep. These characters just needed to appear very, very charismatic, which is what Jack Conrad and Nellie Leroy both are. They're not particularly deep people because they're not 
served any actual obstacles in the first half of the film. It's only until like they lose their grace in Hollywood where they're actually forced to act and try to be deep. And they realize they can't actually access that because they fell in love and operated under the rules of that proto-Hollywood where it was all pizzazz and all glamour and no depth. That they realize like, oh, we really are white trash Americans who thought we could be something greater. And there's a particular scene I really love in Act 2 between Brad Pitt and his third wife, played by uh, the great Catherine Waterstone. You know, she's unfortunately in those Fantastic Beasts movies, but she's great otherwise. She's like this Broadway actress, and she is trying to run lines with him, and she's trying to direct him a little bit because she's like telling him like, yeah, you need to dig deep. You need to be more in tune with your character and more with the emotionality with your character. And he flips out on her because he's like, don't tell me what to do. I am a Hollywood star. I know exactly what I'm doing. And that bites him so badly in the in the sorry bleep that again because you know she's trying to tell him like yeah movies are becoming more serious movies are becoming things that are exploring things more in depth and because of that the characters finally find their own depth within themselves but it's far too late because they start resenting themselves because they see themselves as inefficient in a lot of ways and that's where the fall starts to happen is because eventually it really does get to them for nelly i mean it she is just a chaos engine and that moves towards the end but for jack conrad specifically his fall is a little bit more nuanced and it's a little bit tougher to nail and i don't think the movie does all of it very well however there is one really pivotal scene that i feel like honestly it could have been the final scene for jack conrad for me i feel like there are two scenes that follow that that really just kind of end up in the middling territory it doesn't get all the way there i'm specifically talking about his scene with gene smart's character character the reporter because the reporter is talking about the nature of hollywood in the course of years and years and years and jack conrad is a fleeting moment and so she lays as a bug on the wall which she makes some other metaphor in the film but she's the fly on the wall and he is the zeitgeist he comes and he goes and so that's i think something that really brings the film nicely to a close is that realization that this is something that is way beyond any individual character and it does i think allow for the film to get away with some of the maybe less graceful storytelling is that closing because it is so ambitious and so grand and that moves us all all the way up to the epilogue and the finale. And I agree that a particular line she says really struck me where she was like, look, your time may be up, but your movies will remain timeless. Like you are immortalized. You've made it. You've done your job, but you can't sustain it forever because you yourself are not immortal. You know, and I feel like that's what the movie was trying to say. That's like a big thing it's trying to say. But again, it again brushes up against this like truly frustrating thing that it would have made a great ending scene to an actual movie focused on Jack Conrad. But it doesn't. It continues on for like another hour. <laughs> you know, it just is like, ah, it's so frustrating. I can't, this is like the second episode where I've been truly frustrated, especially on the back burner of like the last time I was this frustrated was with Deepwater and Blonde. Because it has something there and it's almost, in fact, I think with Babylon, it comes way closer than Andrew Dominic Blonde to pretty much perfect. Action. 
Let me put it this way. It's like 10 miles off of being the movie I want it to be because it actually tries to say something. It tries to do something. But before we continue on, we need to talk about like the scene, the Margot Robbie scene where she, the talkies finally happen. We, I know we touched briefly upon it, but to me, that was the best scene. This scene is something between like a screwball comedy a la His Girl Friday and a Safdie Brothers script. It's essentially a day in the life in a very similar way to what you described earlier with the cameras breaking, but it is so much more delicate because everything is so much more important and imbued with that importance, and we can feel the tension in the air. I mean, my body tensed up watching this scene. It was like very, very masterful storytelling showing us what's important and what's not, and what's important is this silent energy. It needs to be completely quiet in the room, which is the same with a modern film. The only problem is nobody knew how to operate on a movie set that way. And also the sound stage appeared to be a little bit wonky. They were trying to use the old stages that they were using for the silent films in the talkies. And so people were, the shoes were clacking, certain things were just going wrong. The room was of course hot and it's just this really fast paced scene where one little thing goes wrong everyone freaks out they start over the sweat is dripping down uh nelly's face as she's trying to remember these lines because again she doesn't know how to act she's trying her best and so she is trying to hit her mark and she doesn't know how to because previously she's been able to just wander around as she likes and you get this magnanimous percussive scene yeah and it moves to a head where everyone's eventually screaming at each other because they just want to get this one very small scene right and they end up shouting at the producer because he's knocking on the door and the, the producer of course played by jeff garland who's like what the heck is going on we need this scene to already have been done and yeah wow i mean i could keep talking about it but i'd just be rambling it's it is such a one of my favorite scenes of the past year great scene percussive effective tense amazing and yet still this is something that is actually very real the tension on the set the tension of being able to pick up sound is something that people constantly face. I face it all the time. When I was doing student films, we had to work around in Chicago. The trains were such an important part of working around a set because you could only film for a certain amount of time on a take before a train would pass by because we were right by the intersection of the blue and the red lines in Chicago. So that's one of those things that I totally related to. Do you have any other scenes you want to shout out before we close off this talk about Babylon? This scene is the true turning point of the silent era transitioning to the talkie era. So as you Jordan said, like the jazz singer comes out, which was the first big movie that used actual talking and voice and sound as opposed to silent era script and of course, silent era acting. So everybody was like, we need to do that too. We need to copy this format because this is the future. From now on, actors will actually be able to talk to each other and we'll be able to record that in films. But because as Jordan said, like that technology was very new and it was very, very hard to navigate and it needed to be very, very specific. Every scene needed to be perfect in order to be not only shot, but recorded. This particular scene, more importantly, it showed conflict that reverberated across the entire movie. Even though Nelly was facing it directly, we immediately knew the world was changing and every character was feeling it. And whether they could capitalize it or be crushed by the weight of it was starting to be apparent. 
because some characters like reveled in the fact that the talkies were happening and they could capitalize on their futures even more. And there are other characters that were like, I'm screwed. And seeing that turn between one half of the cast and the other was so fascinating to watch. Like scenes like that and scenes like the beginning of the Fablemans where he holds like that image in his hand. Those are scenes of true auteurs of cinema. But what's frustrating, again, is that these scenes are so few and far between. So you asking me, is there another scene like that that you want to break down makes me sad because there isn't, <laughs> you know, there there isn't really. There is like beautiful shots of compositions. Of course, like the music by Justin Hurwitz is always incredible. And, you know, there is certain choices Damien Chazelle decides to do, Manny running to get the camera and, and you know, this particular scene with them trying to shoot this really frustrating scene with Nelly, our pure cinematic genius. But in a three-hour movie, you know, those are just oasises in a long, wide-spanning desert of frustration. I found Babylon to be unwieldingly charming. And so that charm for me goes a long way. Whereas the Fablemans, I think, might be charming in a different way. And yet it's something I feel like Babylon is a movie I would want to rewatch with friends. That's like a party movie. It's something you put on and you're like, isn't this just an absolute wild time? Whereas the Fablemans is like, this is a fine movie that you could take your grandma to on a Sunday matinee. And so that's kind of where I stand, is that I think I personally have a subjective tilt towards Babylon because I just like that style more. And I think it's also mechanically a little bit more sound as well. But that is, of course, just my opinion. But that said, I think both movies are really well told. And I mean, it was a great year of cinema in general. So the fact that neither one of these appeared on my top 10 list of last year is not a sign that either of these movies are necessarily bad, but just that they aren't necessarily on the same plane as something that has a little bit more in the mechanical world, something that has a little bit more control of its ideas, whereas Babylon particularly lets its ideas run free and loose, and that's really cool when you see Nellie try to fight a snake. But when it comes to the final acts of the movie, you need something that's a little bit more sure-handed in order to bring it to its conclusion. And while I found the last 10 minutes and the tone poem that followed to be just like crazy, unique, awesome, all of these great things, I can also say that maybe it's not the best use of the time that Damien Chazelle has. Like the entire movie is a mirror to Singing in the Rain because a lot of the characters also follow like similar beats to Singing in the Rain and Manny recognizes that as in the final like five minutes of the movie where he decides to watch Singing in the Rain close to his old like Kinescope studios and he's watching and he's like recognizing a lot of beats that he had to endure in the past of this movie throughout like the run of the movie along with other beats other characters had to endure. It's almost like meta story telling the character realizes something larger than themselves and something larger than the movie itself because it's a blueprint to a different movie entirely and that in itself was cool especially to be like in on it at the very end but other than that one scene which was at the very very end the rest of the last act as well as like the gene smart and brad pitt scene the rest of the last act was really disconnected from the thematic messages of this movie if the first two acts actually had 
had to do with Hollywood and focused on like the jubilation and the darkness of Hollywood. The third act had nothing to do with that. It almost felt like a crime movie and it felt so removed from the rest of what the story Damien Chazelle set up to tell. And when it ended, I was just kind of like, well, that's the end, I guess. But going back to what you were saying of like comparing the Fablements and Babylon, if you had to ask me right now which one I would prefer and which one I would watch again, I would of course say Babylon, but only because it's more ambitious because it's actually trying to say something as opposed to being like, hey, I am patting myself on the back because I am Steven Spielberg and I deserve it. And I'm like, you're right, Steven, you do deserve it. But I don't have to watch it again. I'm sorry, because you're not saying anything. I think the final act will vary for each person. I can't imagine that this calling it messy, I think, is pretty subjective because it is so different to the first two acts. And um, some people might connect to that more. So that's why um, all y'all have your opinions and we have ours. And we are going to be sharing a whole lot more of our opinions in part two of the Oscars conversation, which we are going to be talking about in just a few days time. So thank you all so much for listening. And please do stay tuned. We are going to be breaking down the slate. We're going to do a little bit of predictions. And then we are going to be talking about Tar. So until then, I am Jordan Conrad. And I am Nevo Boss. And we are signing off another episode of Zeitgeist. We will see you all very, very soon.